Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we are in our world religions discussion, and our expert today is Dr. Timothy Tennant, who is president of Asbury Seminary, and you must teach in a department there as well. Is that right? I do. I'm a professor of world Christianity in the E. Stanley Jones School of World Missions there as well. Okay. I teach one class a semester. Yeah, yeah, we know how. <laughs> you know how that is. I know how that works. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> welcome to our gig, right? Uh, and uh, and we're going to discuss engaging religions, engaging different religions and talk about how to do this uh, well. It's it's a theme of the series that we've had as we've gone kind of one world religion at a time. But uh, Timothy is here talking uh, on campus today uh, on a on a conference that we're that is about world religions, and he's our keynote speaker. So we thought we'd bring him in and and let him interact and help us think through this as well. So first question is how did you get into this gig? I mean, you know, what what caused you to um, to focus on world religions as part of your life's work? I, it was a number of things. Number one, I, Darrell, I grew up in a Jewish community in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. and I was the only Gentile in my community. So I grew up being looked at as a religious other, you know, in my uh-huh. whole life. So it always fascinated me. But then I had the experience of uh, going to India to teach as a pastor. I'd had a I had an MDev degree, uh, and I was doing some teaching in India, and I was I met with so many profound questions and issues that I had never thought. I had a good degree from Gordon-Conwell, mm-hmm. been well-trained, but I just kept meeting questions that I had never thought about, and it really compelled me to to do more work. And where, so, where in India were you? In North India. Okay. In oh. Dune, okay. Up in North India. Yes. Yeah, I've only been to the south. So I've I've heard it's right. very it's different. A different country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Country. So um, interesting. Um, you know, it strikes me, and and we've talked about this that this is a this is a hole somewhat in 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 seminary curricula just because of everything else the seminary is trying to do mm-hmm. oftentimes and yet it's become more important as i mean not only is the world more tightly connected but even our own country has become more diverse and so the likelihood of people in fact it's the premise of the our entire series is the likelihood of your having neighbors whose religious background is mm-hmm. is very different than anything you're familiar with has become a much more common absolutely i think all of us i mean not just Dallas but Asbury and all other seminaries are transitioning to a a post christendom you know, curriculum, mm-hmm. how we think about things, and we've inherited a Christendom-framed curriculum, and so my grandmother would never have met a Buddhist in her life, right. you know? and so that was the assumption, and now our kids are going to school with people from all over the world, and uh, and the church has to learn how to adapt to that, and not to mention the global dynamics, uh, especially with Islam, that require, um, I mean, Christians have to be the best at interacting with the political dimensions of all this as well. And that involves an informed populace, and we don't have that yet. Right. Yeah, I like to say the world is getting bigger and smaller simultaneously (laughs) because we have more people on the one hand, but we're also more tightly connected on Mm -hmm. the other. And so you can't – and this is true of our, our children. I actually think one of the things that we're seeing 
in the difference between the older generation and the younger generation is a generation that has grown up with this global reality as a part of their lives in a way that was only in a distant way, I think, true for, for at least my generation. I won't necessarily lump you in together with me, but uh, um, but uh, and I think that's important to realize. Mm. And it's also it's not only pro- geographic proximity, which mm-hmm. we have, you know I think right. assumption of your point, but it's also the social networks. Right. You know, Facebook. There are more Indians on Facebook than Americans, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And the connect global connection people that are through social media is dramatic. Mm-hmm. It is dramatic. And it creates new alliances, new coalitions, new conversation pieces. And uh, th- those are connections that we, our previous generation couldn't have even imagined. Yeah. And, and I have in mind just, just the nature of, of news and where it comes from and, and the exposure of what you see on television, what people are, uh, are, have within their grasp, et cetera. And it, and it, it's this dance between that's foreign on the one hand and yet it's in my world on the other, mm-hmm. and so that that kind of mm-hmm. uh, hybrid combination, if I can say it that way, uh, is something everyone has to adjust to. And the and the church has tended to be um, culturally nearsighted, I think, in how it, it, it has viewed that. Um, in some ways, for understandable reasons, but in terms of being able to actually uh, engage with someone who's coming from a Completely different place culturally, religiously, etc. Um, it, it means developing a level of sensitivity that you didn't necessarily have to develop in previous generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the church, I think for many years, had a, a sensitivity toward that in preparing the missionary community. Right. And a lot of seminaries invested, as yours has too, uh, you know, a lot of resource in preparing people to be a missionary, but they never really thought about their main crop of MDiv students, for example, going out as pastors in Dallas right, uh, all over the country, but to be – that's a missiological challenge right, and therefore requires the same kind of skills, uh, new language, new cultural learning that you learn that was assumed, of course, you need that if you go to India, but now you need it to go to Dallas. <laughs> exactly. In fact, the church that I'm a part of and have been a part of since I was a student here um, is located in a suburb of Dallas, Richardson, and we are literally one mile away from the major mosque in the region, mm-hmm. which was not the case when I was a student. Right. And so with that, all the demographic shift of the uh, of the neighborhood, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's forced us to think through how do we how do we get to know our neighbors? Mm-hmm. So we actually have developed a program out of the church that that meets regularly with the imam at the at the mosque. We actually bring people together for dinner on occasion just so they can get to know each other and get to know the particular style of faith, if I can say it that way, that exists yeah, with Muslims here in the in the North Texas area, that may not be what they're seeing. On, in fact, it isn't what they're seeing on television. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, just as a way of of familiarizing people in our church with who their neighbors actually are, and and the strategies that are required for that, what that's what's been required of our pastor in that church mm-hmm. <laughs> is a whole level of engagement that really he he barely got to touch on when he was in seminary. So true. Yeah, yeah so true. Uh, so so the challenge is you know how do you engage and we w- the way we've built 
both the conference that, of course, you're keynoting for and the way we've built these podcasts is to kind of ask three questions. Um, you know, what's this faith about, whatever, whichever faith we're talking about? Um, what causes people to adhere to it? What's, a, what's, what's attractive in what's in this religion that causes people to be drawn to it? And then how does the gospel speak into that attraction, which is a little different than the way um, religions used to be handled or often are handled. Not that this is wrong, but it's just a different way to do it, which is simply, well, how does this religion line up against mm-hmm. the Bible? Uh, so uh, tell us some of the things that you're trying to, to highlight for, for people as they think about engaging in this, in this new environment. Well, yeah, we, um, I think theologically we, we acknowledge that we're all one in Adam. You know, there's, there's a common humanity in Adam, and we're fallen creatures in the whole human race. And that creates actually a certain commonality in how religions are dealing with, and they may deal with it differently or, or wrongly, but they're still trying to respond to some basic core human issues. So there's a lot of religious things that we try to connect with. There's also cultural things. I mean, if you show up at the city hall, for example, to complain about uh, pornographic distribution in your local stores, you're dismissed as a religious fanatic. Mm -hmm. But if you show up there as a Christian pastor with a Muslim imam with you who have the same concerns, they will receive you because mm-hmm. they've never they can't imagine <laughs> a uh-huh. pastor and a mom <laughs> coming together about anything, <laughs> and so it becomes almost newsworthy. It would actually be reported in the news if you did it because right, it was right. a, it's like well that's a newsworthy thing because people are hungry for people to get along you know and and in today's context. So I think that you know we're exploring to, in today's uh, conference uh, some avenues, for example, uh, in true Pure Land Buddhism where. They have a, a deep sense of that their their only hope of salvation is through through grace and through mm-hmm. faith, and that's such an important conversation. It's a common conversation they can have, and it's a it's a helpful one to explore things. And we're also looking at, as I said, you know, we often think about how the uh, the Bible interacts with other literature, and most people have not realized that the Bible does appear in the literature of other religions and how mm-hmm. it interacts with that. And so, especially with the Quran, this is a factor where, so we're looking at, okay, how do we respond when uh, texts come, uh, our texts appear in their literature, or or if you are interacting with people and they want to look at the Quran or look at the Bible, you know, should Christians study the Quran? Should they learn the Quran? Is it helpful to do that? Those are really, really important questions, and I think it's really helpful. I mean, even a practical best is if you give somebody a copy of the Gospel of John, they say, "Have you read the Quran?" They say, "No." Mm-hmm. Well, why should they take it? Yeah. You, know, but you say, "Yeah, I've read the Quran," you know, but you should read this, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, and the idea of going to Surah three, for example, where Jesus, uh, where it says that Jesus healed the eyes of the blind and healed the leper, and then saying. You know, would you like to see where Jesus did that? Uh-huh. There's not a Muslim who's ever said to me no, yeah. because their own Quran gives witness to it. Uh-huh. So the next thing you know, you've gone from the Quran to the Bible. And uh-huh. so to me, these com- connections are actually helpful and uh, open. I've had conversations in mosque before mm-hmm. about the Bible with Muslims. I actually did a Q&A with Muslims about the Bible in a mosque in Boston. Uh-huh. And it was just so interesting, and and we had a Q and A afterwards. And one of the, I mean, with students that were there watching, and so one of the students asked the question to the Muslim, said, "Do you believe in grace?" And so uh, his answer just this, caught a roar from the students. He said, um, "Absolutely." He says, "Every Muslim believes in grace." 
we just believe you have to earn it. <laughs> the students laughed about that for months. You know? uh-huh. But it was a point is that Muslims do believe in grace, but they understand how it comes to you differently. And so it, it opened this amazing opportunity. Well, you know, how do they understand how someone can earn the grace of God? Right. Where from our point of view, it's impossible. Which raises the whole issue of terminology uh, sometimes right. that people are using the same word but in very different ways and with very sure. different sub-understandings. Uh, you, you alluded to something I want to develop a little bit, because I, I had heard – I remember hearing this when I first became a Christian and going to a, apologetic seminars where, you know, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is, you know, salvation is by grace and that's only true in Christianity. And what I'm hearing you say is, is that there are there – are, there is the presence of grace in many of these world religions. It may not be framed exactly as Christianity frames it, but there is that presence there, and that's actually one of the potential bridges into some mm. of these discussions. Absolutely. I think it's true that uh, Buddhism at its, its founding core and Islam at its founding core, and it's to a lesser degree but somewhat true with Hinduism, have a kind of a works orientation there. But what happens is groups within those religions came up upon the wall of that mm-hmm. and the impossibility of that. And so obviously with, with Shinran, especially in, uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, with a true Pure Land Buddhism, uh, they developed a doctrine, absolutely, you, can, you cannot save yourself, you have no hope, you must be saved only through grace, through faith. And that's a very developed doctrine. And you also get this in Islam and Hinduism and other pockets of that that mm-hmm. see their need for that. And and it's expressed in various ways. So grace is a conversation piece that Christians can have with other religions. Yeah, I've, I've found that the, another bridge that, that is similar in tone and direction is the whole area of humility before God, mm-hmm. that, um, that there is a recognition of in, – now, in, in the East, this is a little more difficult, but in, but in certain other places, there's this recognition of I am – God is so much greater than, than I am. and and that there needs to be an element of humility in how we respond to God, that there is a there is a humbling that life delivers to you, if I can say it that mm-hmm. way, um, that that opens doors and bridges for conversation. Uh, so true. So true. And uh, the you know, the way that Christians that uh, speak to Muslims and, and Buddhist Hindus, the the posture in your demeanor is so important in the conversation mm-hmm. because like everything else, you know, you can't just simply go as a truth deliverer, even though God is we believe in revelation, we've got his self disclosed himself in the word of God. But we also recognize that we, we the gospel has to be encountered in a contextual point. And I, I tell people that even the most basic Christian statement, Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. is like the most basic three word statement is a contextual statement because mm-hmm. it comes out of somebody's, you know, white face or African face or Indian face. Mm-hmm. It's spoken in a particular language. It's contextualized, and so people hear it within those contexts. And so, it's so important for us to learn to work through that. And to uh, no one will talk to uh, an American, or we won't talk to a Muslim without certain presuppositions and ideas that flow into that conversation. They have to be. You know, wrestle with and talked about. Yeah, and I, I find that one of the things that we have done and we're doing in the series is to 
talk about how different some of these orientations are, because if you're in certain Eastern contexts where there is no concept of a creator god, for example, and the idea of an accountability to this creator god or anything like that, you're almost in the – you're almost in a in, – for lack of a better description, thinking Christianly, in a pre-evangelism stage, because mm-hmm. even your first sentence needs development in order to even bring up the topics of what it is the Scripture is talking about. Yeah, what, the way I describe that same point is to say that when you're a Christian, you think about Revelation from Genesis you know, 1-1 into Revelation. And so you, you look at people within the span of that because that's your frame. And so it's hard to imagine a people group or a religious group that's actually pre-Genesis 1-1. Mm-hmm. So I say Hindus are often struggling with things like, you know, is is there is there a God? Is there not a God? Uh, it, could he, did he create the world? They have various creation myths. Others say no, and so it's, in some ways, it, Genesis one one is already saying something. They're still debating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so you're, it's hard to work in that environment for Christians to have to adapt to that because we go in assuming. And of course, Buddhists being non-theistic at all right. is a huge challenge because exactly. most people assume they look in temples, they must be highly uh, theistic, and then, of course they're not. And so those are big things. Uh, you know, with Islam, you have more parallels in some ways because the Abrahamic uh, common core there. But with Hindus and Buddhists, you definitely have to realize you're in a different, you know, conceptual universe, and their problems are different. We did this thing where I, I, I did a survey of uh, Hindu le- Hindu uh, leaders in different villages over a two-year period and asked them their own questions and perceptions of Christianity, and they published his little book, "Your Questions, Our Answers." And what was amazing was that the we were shocked by the perceptions they had about Christianity mm-hmm. that, that that were that we didn't think they would have, and the real troubling thing was that the uh, the the most the top questions that were asked hundreds of times in villages across India were not actually addressed in our curriculum in North India. Mm-hmm. We had transported a Western curriculum, and sure. we did a pretty good job you know, learning Bible theology, church history, but we weren't actually addressing the questions that the average Hindu had. Mm-hmm. So it shows that that's a big part of the where we have to go, is learning to think about education and ministry from the perspective of the unbeliever, rather than from the perspective of the believer, where we already have our conversation going on. And so that jump to look at the world and look at the gospel from another perspective and then address those questions is a really great mythological challenge that I think all seminaries are wrestling with. And puts a huge challenge on how we listen to people in order to get mm-hmm. – uh, my first rule of engagement is first thing you need to do is to get a spiritual GPS on someone mm-hmm. and just sit and listen. Let them tell their story. Turn off your heresy meter. You know, <laughs> just sit and listen and hear where they're coming from. What drives them? What their spiritual interests are? Where their spiritual resources are found? All those kinds of core questions. So you just get a map about where they're coming from, and then that is uh, through those things you figure out and begin to figure out where are the bridges where we can begin to to have a real conversation because I think uh, a lot of times we go in ready to tell in fact when someone's telling us their story our brain is going all right what's the response to that mm-hmm. where's the retort to that right you know right. And, and, in, and in the process we've, we've actually shut off not just engaging with the person we've shut off getting to know the person and cut ourselves off from what really could be a mutually enriching conversation. and I, I see that as one of the great challenges of even how we teach our students about tone mm-hmm. and about engagement. 
And I think in my experience with Hindus, already have a predisposition to be that way in talking to you. It's less than other groups, so we can learn from that. I also think it's important to have the um, the honesty about where we have both common ground and boundaries. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes Christians think that the only purpose of the dialogue is to discover common ground. Mm-hmm. And of course, that really is important. But it's also important to have the honest admission that Christianity really is different on really key points. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the famous lines in the uh, with Ma- the early followers of Islam is when they went across to the Abyssinia and the person drew a line in the sand and said, the difference between your religion and ours, Christianity and Islam, is no no wider than the, this line in the sand. And so that was quoted to me by a Muslim in a dialogue one time out in Portland, Oregon. And um, he said to me, this was the exact word, he said, I really think there's not that much difference between Christianity and Islam. There's just so much we agree with. If you would just give up the deity of Christ and the Trinity, we could get along fine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> there are some real differences. Yeah. And it's okay to talk about that and say, you know, these are real deep differences, even though there are a number of things where we really do have common uh, ground on. Yeah, when you're talking about Islam, it's, it, it's that, and then on the other, on the other ground, Again, thinking about it where where a Muslim might be coming from, the whole emphasis on submission on the one hand versus the emphasis on on covenantal grace and the building of character and uh, of of sorry of relationship and covenants. You know that dimension is a ver- that that's a way of God relating to us and us relating to God that is not very prevalent and prominent in Islam, and yet it's central. It's central to the way Christianity views interaction, right? And right. And, and so the, but those can be those conversations can be engaged in as conversations, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not as not necessarily debates. It isn't the challenge will be there; it'll be there, but it but there'll be conversations. I like to, t- you know, I like the way Paul handles himself in Acts seventeen. I, in fact, I I tell hmm. I actually preach this passage on a regular basis and say. What do you do with an audience that doesn't know Genesis from Malachi? They know squat about the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's right. Where do you start with someone like that? Well, he started with the Creator God and the accountability that they have the Creator God. In the Greco-Roman world, the world of, of spirits and the idea that spirits were around that you had to negotiate with was was a given. 150 of your mm-hmm. of your days in your year were religious holidays, and I tell people we ought to adopt that calendar. A day off every three days would be a nice thing, you know. But um, so so they had a starting point, but then he goes around and he says things to them that what I call giving people pause. Have you thought about this? If you're gonna if you you know if you're gonna box God in and think that He's this size and He's manageable and controllable and mm-hmm. and, and imageable, if I can coin a word, um, and he and in spots he's saying, have you thought about it this way? Mm. And it and it he's challenging them, but he's challenging them by thinking about where they are starting from, and in that process is opening up a future conversation, which I suspect he probably had in the marketplace where he worked on a regular basis with those he was rubbing shoulders mm, with. That's so true, and that really brings up you know. So in that case, and also also with Cornelius, I think you find uh, what I often call a double conversion. You know, where Cornelius is down there, you know, you have the conversion of Cornelius's household, but Peter is also converted in another kind of way, right? In mm-hmm. that experience, because he his um, 
his own view of God was enlarged in, in many ways. And so I think we talked about the two categories of you know us understanding them more and them understanding us more. But the thing that I, the other dimension amazes me is what you don't expect is that talking to a Muslim or a Hindu or Buddhist actually opens up things where you end up understanding their own gospel better. Right. Or you realizing uh, something you had not seen in your own text before because they themselves like question things. Well, I never thought of that. Or there are just so many things that have helped me grow as a Christian because of my interaction with um, – with my, my friends from other religions. It's amazing. You are introducing a thought that actually explains why we're doing this series. Mm, okay. Um, this series comes from a trip I took a couple of years ago to Thailand. So I was in Bangkok and, uh, and, and in the midst of being in Bangkok, we went up to uh, another town. The name is now escaping me, but it's where all the missionary organizations in Thailand are, seem to be. Chiang Mai, probably. Chiang Mai, Chiang Mai. yes. Yeah. We were in Chiang Mai. <laughs> and we spent the day, my wife and I spent the day walking from temple to temple. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, because you're so immersed in a context that's so different than your own, I found myself watching people walk in and perform whatever religious rites they were performing. Of course, I had no context, so I didn't know what is this about. I wonder what they're thinking. You know, just going through the 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 process of trying to, to understand and identify with what was going on, and I realized in the midst of that experience that I knew so little about. Um, about the religious faith that this person was connected to, et cetera, and, and that my training had given me very little background for, and, and even more, even less, an understanding about what the human dimension of that mm-hmm. worship meant and could mean. And I thought to myself, if I, having taught in a seminary for 34 years at the time, is in this position, I can't imagine what the position is of most students who don't get to be on a trip like the one I'm now on. Mm-hmm. And and I thought to myself, oh boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I felt like I'd walked into a black hole. And um, and so I, I came back and, and talked to the staff and said, there are a whole series of religions about which most of us in the West who are Christians know so little about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't want to understand it from the standpoint of is it right or wrong. I just want to understand the kind of religious experience that the person is in the midst of having mm-hmm. and, and think about it that way. And so that's and I found myself because I have had conversations with people who are in different religious contexts where they they automatically see the world so differently than the way I process it. Their template is so different mm-hmm. than mine uh, that I do find them asking questions that do reflect on my own faith and my own spiritual walk in a way that that adds a dimension that in some cases I hadn't thought about before. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. 
these stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, so true. In missiology, that, that's called the uh, etic and emic yeah, know, perspective, sure. of course. Yep. And it is so true that you could study uh, a religion from an academic point of view, and you could be able to uh, you know, defend the dissertation on it, but not necessarily understand the experience of someone who is in that and belongs to that. And I've also found that people who approach us are actually in the same boat. Right. Because we often forget there's a lot of information about Christianity that's kind of just out there, you know, some faults, some truths, some misunderstandings, but it's out there. And yet many of them have actually not ever met. Uh, I was in China. My experience like that was in China, and I had a class of students. I was there teaching English. And... Yeah, I realized we, we had this thing called second classroom, and so we would, we would have a regular class, but they were always afraid about things being bugged or whatever. Uh-huh. So we would go down to the park in the evening, and they would talk freely, uh-huh. and they called it the second classroom. Uh-huh. And so we took a bus down there, and so I learned a lot about their lives. But it was so interesting to, for them to try to understand what's it like for a Christian to pray, for example, mm-hmm. or you know what what because Muslims often think we're prayerless, but uh-huh. we don't pray publicly or all right. that. You know, so there's a lot of perceptions about our actual practice in our life, uh, which is uh, really enlightening. Well, I'm going to have a Sesame Street moment here. Define the two terms that we're talking about, because most people won't know what that means. Right. It just means the etic, the insider perspective, and the emic, the outside perspective. Mm-hmm. So one is about the experience of somebody religiously that is a pra- practitioner, and one is those on the outside observing it. And so he, C.S. Lewis makes the point about how well uh, an anthropologist could actually identify a particular rain dance. So that's category B, you know, in a certain like <laughs> chart, you know, of uh-huh. different kinds of rain dances in, in a place like, you know, uh, Malawi. Uh-huh. But he has no idea what the person who is doing the dance is experiencing. Right, right. And so that whole uh, Paul Hebert and others, of course, right. have popularized the idea of uh, who brought anthropological insights uh, into Christian discourse. And so and, and, and this is actually an important part of this conversation because you're actually you're trying to help people you can't do this and you can't do this in entirety there's no way to do it without actually being in this faith this other faith but you're trying to get people to think about the difference between looking at it from the outside versus thinking about what the experience is and the coherence that it has it attempts to have those kinds of things mm-hmm. as you're engaging in it, which then builds your ability to interact um, with what it is someone else is experiencing whose experience is very different than your own. That's true. So true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so l- l- uh, I'm, I'm, I, there's another lingering thought that I had. You were talking earlier about how Islam has to inter- can interact. It's easier to interact with because. Um, because they allude to our scripture, and I. And while you were talking about that, I'm thinking about well, our situation with Judaism is really interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> because there we could be accused of using their scripture uh, and, yeah. and having come along to some degree later with so much of our Bible being their Bible and yet put together very differently. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's true. It really does raise the whole question of revelation, how we think about uh, our text, because we, we don't seem to have a problem with uh, you know, Jude quoting uh, the Pseudepigrapha or Paul quoting Greek poets or us quoting the Old Testament. Um, but it really does you know, raise the question of how uh, sacred texts interact with each other or, or even uh, you know, Matthew and Luke having a shared, uh, shared document that we mm-hmm. don't have access to, you know, mm-hmm. quelled or whatever. Yeah. You know, those are really interesting uh, kind of questions about how uh, God's revelation works within those contexts. And you know, if John 3.16 were to – it's not – but were, to, were it to be quoted in somebody else's sacred text, does it, does it lose you – know, in what way is, uh, is it, does it relate to those texts? So I often say that you know, inspiration – we often understand inspiration, authority, and revelation, canonicity as like a separate uh, conversation or separate study in theology. And when you actually look at it in the context of real ministry, it's connected to Christology, it's connected to soteriology, it's connected to ecclesiology. Connected to everything. It's connected to everything, right? Yeah. And so therefore, we can't talk about, you know, like the fact that the Quran says, thou shalt not covet. All right, that that con- that can't be taken in the same way without the context of all that it's connected to, or that even that Jesus uh, healed the blind man, uh, and so I think part of what it's what's done for me is help me to understand how Christianity can't be cut into little pieces in the way that we often do it. It actually is a great, massive, you know, meta narrative with many parts to it. And it comes with that full force. You it's know, an integrated you, whole. It's an integrated whole. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you don't understand how the pieces relate to each other um, – and, and, and the other religions that are coming at us are coming at us to some degree as integrated wholes, although I think it's important to understand – this is one of the things that I think are doing the series has shown is you can talk about Buddhism, but then the next question is which Buddhism? Mm-hmm. Or you can talk about Islam, and the next question is which Islam? And you can, and so just like Christ, you can talk about Christianity, thinking about it popularly, um, and and you think about well, what kind of Christianity are we talking about? Uh, and so, uh, yet another reason to sit and engage the person because you may have an impression about what. Islam is that may or may not actually match up with the way this person practices mm-hmm. their their expression of Islam. You mix that in with all the um, folk uh, elements in religions around the world, and man, does that puzzle get mess- messy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. It's so true. And I think uh, historically, I think in, especially with Hindus and Buddhism, but with Hinduism you have a lot of, uh, I think, uh, regional religions uh, that over time get reified and actually get placed onto a philosophical foundation that you know itself happened over time. And so, in many times, the experience of a Hindu, at least this is my experience in North India, the average Hindu who is in one of those sub categories that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. they actually may not be aware of, of how, where they connect, fit. how they yeah. fit. Yeah. And so I don't think a person that's, uh, that's doing an Mbutsu, Tamitama Buddha, you know, in, uh, in China may actually not realize that they're part of this Mahayana stream and there's also the Theravada stream and there's the, any more than like a person that necessarily is a Baptist understands how that fits into the whole, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy. They may not even know the, of the Oriental Orthodox Church or the Assyrian Orthodox Church or, you know, Roman Catholic 
it, whatever. They're just, you know, they're a Baptist. They're doing their thing. They're doing their thing. Yeah. There's <laughs> a trail over the world. Yeah, yeah. And, but but that, that makes it a challenge mm-hmm. because if, for the person seeking to engage, because they may have a, a, a book knowledge of what's going on. In fact, I found myself doing this in the midst of these interviews on individual religions. We have someone in who's an expert, say, on Buddhism or Shintoism. This is actually where this happened, where I'm going through and I'm talking about, you know, what I've, I've had no exposure to Shintoism at any point in my life. And so I'm going through what the books have told me about Shintoism, et cetera, and I'm listening to someone who lived in Japan mm. for a very long time say, well, that may be what the books say, but let me tell you what I experienced <laughs> right. living in Japan with the people that I was neighbors who were who you know had Shinto uh, connections and and so there's this there's this reconnection that almost needs to happen between what you hear about a faith and the actual engagement of 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 dealing with a person who has a particular expression of that faith mm-hmm. that's true and all religions have the dimension of a uh, philosophical or structural kind of conceptuality to it, and then there's the folk practice of it, and I think we all recognize that in our own faith. But certainly, that is that is universally true, absolutely. So all of this is to say that the importance of of, of listening and building that relationship and engaging in a way in which you are. Really trying to get a sense. You're 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 doing two locations at once. You're trying to get a sense of where this person's coming from spiritually, but you're also trying to to understand yourself mm. in relationship to that person, in and where you are spiritually equipped or not equipped to address what it is that they're talking about. Mm, so true. That's true. And as as people come to faith from those backgrounds, they bring a richness. Uh, that we've not discovered. In my book, I deal a lot with the issue of shame, as mm-hmm. not just guilt in terms of the gospel. And such has come because of Asians and Africans have come to the faith and they see things that we've missed. Or, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards called it the ontic expansion of Christ, uh, the ontic expansion of Christ. You know, the way that that Christ, as more people come to worship Christ around the world, they get greater insights into his true beauty and majesty. Mm-hmm. And so to me, one of the gifts of this period we're living in is that a lot of these people that we know, these, these friends from other backgrounds, when they come to faith, uh, Indians, Chinese, you know, Nigerians, et cetera, they bring so much to it and richness, uh, things and insights that help us to appreciate the gospel and see the blind spots, because every culture has blind spots. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the great gift of global Christianity, that, that we've, they're really the first generation to experience the full breadth of global Christianity flowering, and the benefits for the church are enormous. Well, let me, let me this shifts my attention a little bit to the kind of this question, which is, and, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overgeneralize, but it will be for the sake of illustration. Uh, you know, sometimes the idea is, well, Christians have received special revelation. We have the truth. I mean, say that with you know, capital T, both cases, the and truth. And so, and so, the impression is is that everything that goes on out there is somehow false. Um, and it seems to me it's a little more complicated than that. Right. That's right. And that really comes down to your view of Revelation and whether or not um, 
you know, how we understand how God's word goes out into the world. In terms of in scripture revelation, of course, that's true, but God uh, has not left out a witness in, in all kinds of contexts, and whether it's called general revelation or provenient grace, however you describe it, um, in many ways which God uh, shows himself. And so Paul, of course, talks about you know the nature and human conscience, internal, external witnesses. Uh, that obviously has effect religiously in the world. And so I believe that uh, we don't have to say that uh, we have to view everything as a zone of darkness outside of, of the inscription revelation. Because I think part of my understanding of the gospel is that we read the gospel in the presence of the risen Christ, and therefore as the risen Christ, he is leading us to you know, understand, listen to his work and how he goes before us and wherever we go. So I never believe I show up in India alone. And I, I think that's probably what helped me to work in North India, a difficult world. I walked into a village. They may not have heard the gospel. I never believed I was the first one there mm-hmm. because Christ always beats me there. Mm-hmm. He's always there first, and he's enlightening and showing us the way. And so in that sense, I think that um, we can learn and see God's work preparing us uh, for the gospel. And it goes back to Clement. I mean, Clement's the one that first made the what's now said all the time, you know, uh, all truth is God's truth wherever it may be found. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a patristic statement. Not all patristics agree with that, as mm-hmm. you know. There mm-hmm. was a definite reaction against that statement. But Justin Martyr, his doctrine of uh, Logos Formaticos, the seed of the word and his apologies, these are. It shows that from the very beginning, the church was asking that question. You mm-hmm. know, could you requisition like John does the the, uh, the word logos from Middle Platonism, requisition for the gospel? Is that a one-off or is that prescriptive for us? Is it just descriptive what happens there only? You know, those are all rich conversation pieces that have been going on for a long time. And I think we think sometimes that we just started this conversation last Tuesday. Right, right. But actually, the church has been talking about these things for gospel and culture for, for centuries. It's only a Christendom world that forgets the conversations. Right. And I, and I think what's happened is, uh, in part, is because, if I can say it this way, the West lived in such a tight Judeo-Christian right. net for a long time that it, it basically uh, was spending all its time talking to itself. Right now, what's happened, of course, is is that that net is mostly gone, or there are leaks and holes in it if it's not gone entirely. And there are other conversations that are happening, and you find yourself, you know, can, you know, can Paul uh, again? I'm back to Acts 17. You know, Paul comes to a key point in his speech, and rather than citing. A biblical verse, which he never does in that speech anywhere directly, That's although right. it's loaded with biblical theology, um, he cites a Greek poet mm-hmm. to make his point. And I challenge our students. I said, "How many points in in the engagement that you have could you cite an idea out of the culture that would be biblically accurate, but would make the point you're trying to make biblically?" I know. And 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 sometimes that can be done in comparison. Or in contrast, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think we don't push our students enough to think through that kind of a question that way. If you think about the powerful literature that we deal with, or the powerful movies that grab our culture, and you ask yourself, what is it that makes this attractive? Why does this movie resonate with so many people? Is there something at work here in terms of a value or something mm-hmm. that we can talk about from a Christian point of view that will help open up um, a conversation with someone who otherwise might not darken the door of a church? Um, 
I think those are questions worth probing for for us and for our students. Absolutely. I think in light of Billy Graham's passing, I think it's important to think about how he exegeted what in his day was a, a massive uh, theological point of how the gospel is mediated to people through media. Mm-hmm. And for him to requisition the television, the radio, the way he did uh, was fundamental change and how the gospel had been passed on for centuries, but he he understood that that was cultural exegesis in his mm-hmm. case. In the same way, we are facing um, uh, a challenge to do good cultural exegesis and how does our culture transmit information? Uh, how do they transmit values? Uh, how do they transmit relational uh, dynamics? And those, all those things are really huge, and Christians have often not listened well in that way. And that can be highbrow or very simple. I, I tell my students, I say, if you want to know what a culture is about, take a look at the commercials. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, why is this, whatever it is that's being sold or marketed, why is it being pitched in the way it's being pitched? Mm-hmm. What what what's at work here, and um, and that usually is a pretty good clue as to what's what's going on in the society, mm-hmm. and, and what what someone th- that v- value, particularly with the way many commercials now are built. You know, the product is almost an afterthought at the very end of a commercial. Right. There's a feeling that's being right. built around right. the product right. that is driving, and and that's that's sending all kinds of simultaneous messages that are that are built almost to address you without you having to engage your mind. Yeah, so true. I had a, a pastor that I was I've known for years. He's now in his nineties, but he. He pastored the same church for his entire ministry, mm-hmm. and the first 15 years of his ministry, the church just uh, just grew and exploded. It was amazing because he was a very he was a thinker, you know, and he was a great at doing apologetics, et cetera. But then the last 15 years of ministry, the church went through significant decline, and he, being the same pastor, vibrant person, loved the Lord, loved the scriptures, he reflected a lot. Why did this happen to my church? And he said to me one time, he said, "You know, I grew up." and I pastored an I think church. And at one point it went to an I feel church, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to negotiate the change. Uh-huh. Because he was so used to, like, you know, Josh McDowell, like, you know, right, right. I'm gonna give you the five reasons why you exactly. should believe the gospel. And at one point he realized that, you know, the famous statement about, you know, evidence that demands a verdict. Uh-huh. He says, my first 15 years, when I gave him the ev- evidence and said, this demands a verdict, they're like, you're right, they came to faith in big numbers. Uh-huh. And he finally realized, woke up one morning and realized, I gave him the evidence, but to them it didn't demand a verdict. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and he he said I never really know what to do with that, and yeah. so that shows you. And I think also it helps us see that we as a, as leaders that are training the next generation, we train people out of our experience and our background, and they're twenty two five twenty five years old. They're going to be ministering twenty five years from now, right? And so we can't even imagine what they're going to face. That's mm-hmm. one of the challenges in this whole enterprise because we're equipping people for a world that we do not yet know, right? And yet, that's we see them. We see messages. This of it. is actually parallel to a conversation I have quite often when I talk about this, and I say we are used. My generation is used to having an outline point in which you have an argument, and then you have the you know very logically move through it. I said, but my kids have experienced the processing of information more through a web page than through reading through an argument. Mm-hmm. 
Who goes through a web page and starts at the top, clicks the top thing, and then goes through the web page in order? No one does. No one does. <laughs> no one does. Not built that way. It doesn't function that way. It doesn't process them. It's it's free floating. It's and mm-hmm. I and I said. I've had to wrestle with thinking about how do I communicate to people who process information on the basis of association, if I can say mm-hmm. it that way, rather than on the basis of a strict logical sequence. Absolutely. And, and, and so, uh, and and I think engaging in religion is 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 a little different. I mean, you, you're actually trying to read the map of someone who connects, who who makes connections completely differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, some terms mean something completely different than what you're used to. And you're in a process initial, initially of discovery. Absolutely. And, and, and Miss Yell, this is called cognitive mapping. And mm-hmm. it's so true that people do, in fact, it's demonstrably true people actually do think differently mm-hmm. and they process information differently. What you're saying is absolutely true. And over time, generations grow up with certain exposures and they, as a generation, they think differently. Mm-hmm. So, one of the challenges, I mean, if, and like in our, my example of your example would be saying that we learned to make our content the, the core. And the illustration was like, you know, putting a smiley face. And that was like, yeah, you know, yeah. to warm it up it or whatever. It was the attach, it was the a t- sidebar. Right. Yeah. And in India, uh, often the, the, the metaphor is always the core, mm-hmm. all right? And then around that, you put your content, mm-hmm. right? And so how you think about uh, the way people think pictorially, for example, in pictures, which is so classically Eastern, is so different from uh, the way people think in content ways. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. And uh, we could – this whole last – Two minutes is, is its own conversation in many ways. But I think what we've tried to illustrate is when you engage in religion, the, the more you can listen and converse, the better off you're going to be in engaging other people. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Timothy, for coming in. We really appreciate you being a part of this, and we hope that you found this interesting, and we hope you'll join us again on the table real soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.